Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I, I, there's, so there's an ego part of you that's like, why don't I have that? Or why is it, is that, would that, is that, would that make me happy? But I, I see that that's ego. I see that, that, that just, the ego is, I heard this thing, the ego doesn't want to have, it wants to want. So it wants, it stays in this perpetually unsatisfied state of hunger. And I've noticed from different people, I know a lot of people who are at various stages of, of visibility, it just never goes away. You know, you can be at the top, 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 and you're still like pissed off that, you know, Will Smith's getting your roles or whatever, you know? And um, it's kind of like showbiz is like rigged for your dissatisfaction. And you have to decide like where you're going to draw your juice from, like what's going to sustain you. And like the thing that's making me the happiest is learning how to play guitar and writing songs. It's like literally like I can't, it's my happy place. Like when Ben comes over and we're writing or I'm writing on my own, like I feel successful. That was Josh Radner. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. up this morning thinking about my freshman year of college. It wasn't long ago or anything, but um, around that time in my first semester of school, I had what I guess we'll call my first true girlfriend. I, I think that's a fair thing to say. And something she introduced me to was a show called How I Met Your Mother. I had never seen it before. And the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that every relationship has a few default shows that they go to, you know, the times when you really can't pick anything to watch 
and you need to put something on instead of just like talking at each other for any more time. And we often watch this show, and I remember being particularly fond of it. However, my interest in Radner continued past that show. He directed a couple films called uh, Happy Thank You More, Please and Liberal Arts. They had this walk and talk, Linklater, Whit Stillman, Woody Allen feel to them. And I was always intrigued by Radner's ability to switch from a CBS sitcom to these sort of indie DIY type projects. What I didn't really understand is that being on a show that is massively popular around America, but also internationally, is that it makes it really hard for an actor to act in any other format as any other character. Despite the multiple projects since How I Met Your Mother's conclusion, the character of Ted Mosby has really stuck with Radner. And it became abundantly clear in this conversation that no one is more ready to move on than Radner himself. So for the next hour or so, Josh and I did our best to talk about everything other than How I Met Your Mother. But of course, we had to talk about it a little bit. Lastly, I was about to apologize for um, the digressions in this episode, but the more I think about it, the more I'm pretty convinced Talk Easy is 99% digression. So whatever you make of our conversation, however you enjoyed the show, here, finally, is Josh Rander. Rander. Hi, Sam. Are you feeling okay? Yeah, I feel good. Really? Give me give me an update on your life right now. How are you feeling? You know, do you ever go through that thing where it's like your everything feels good in your immediate life? Like <laughs> I, like I'm dealing with like my immediate life feels like I kind of things are like like under control, like some things are happening. I'm I feel creatively engaged. And then it's like you go onto Twitter and you're like, oh my God, like the world's on fire. <laughs> And you don't know how to you don't know how to juxtapose your own individual okayness with, with the collective uh, you know madness. Yeah, the colossal collective disarray. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a hard moment. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, very. It's a hard moment. So I I I feel I feel good. I feel alert. I feel um, I'm excited about making stuff. I'm excited about you know things coming out into the world that I've had a hand in. And then on the other hand, it's like, are we going to be here? In a, you know, I mean, it really feels like a perilous moment. So yeah. I don't know. I, I'm always juggling, like, how much attention am I supposed to give this uh, dumpster <laughs> fire? And how much, like, like, how much anxiety am I supposed to feel about that? Like, what is a healthy amount? Because I, mm. I can get really hijacked by that stuff. Well, you know, yeah. There's almost a selfish question to ask, which is, will it even be here? Or rather, we, will we be here to see the things that we're trying to put out there? Like the our yeah. own art, yeah. There's, there's a chance that not only what we're doing doesn't matter, which we already kind of know, yeah. But that no one will even see it, yeah. I suppose, but I mean, like John Keats knew he was dying, so he was really cranking out poems. You know what I mean? Like yes. maybe that can be a, a nice motivator. <sighs> I don't think I'm like Keats, though. You don't think? No, you're not the Keats of the podcasting world. I, wow, you know, why don't we declare that right now? But you'd be yeah. the first, and let me tell you, Josh, the <laughs> only, the only. Yeah, I feel okay, but I do know that feeling. Though, you have had what feels like to me as someone who's only known you for 15 minutes. 30. 
30 minutes. Yeah. Don't tell us short, man. We had a good 30-minute pre-chat. That's really great. (laughs) I'm glad you're fighting for us right away. It feels like you've had fairly sustained success. Well, that's probably what it looks like because you, you know, it's almost like looking at a record, right? And you're like, those are 12 great songs. And you're like, how many were discarded? How many bad demos? How many songs didn't work? How many, you, you know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. you, you, you get a, a kind of thing that you're like, this is what I made. Yes. So it's the most almost, polished version. Yeah. Of or, you know, when you're starting out as an actor and people are like, Hey, you're working quite a bit. And you're like, yeah, I had a thousand auditions I didn't get, you know? So you're, I guess I'm there every step of the way and you get like the greatest hits. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we're given. Yeah, yeah. But why don't you tell me what's happening outside of that? Outside of? The greatest hits. Oh, outside of the greatest hits? You mean yeah. like life stuff? Well, yeah. Why don't you, I, what I was interested in is the show Rise yeah. is is very much jumping into the messiness of high school in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I wanted to know your place in high school back when that was happening. Sure. What were you like back then? You know, I, I, I went to this uh, private school until high school. I went to this Orthodox Hebrew day school. So I, it was a very small school. I think I graduated with like 12 in my eighth grade class. So, and I'd been there since kindergarten. So it was this really, like, I, it was a very um, safe kind of feeling. And then I went to this high school that was, I don't know, about 800 students. It was a public high school. I knew a lot of people there, but it still felt like, it, you know, it was, it was socially pretty sharky and competitive. And, uh-huh. Um, but it was also one of those schools where it was cool to be on the honor roll. It was cool to get good grades and participate in the activities. So that was my speed because I was involved in a lot of stuff. I was on the swim in the swim team. I was on the school paper. I then my my sophomore year, I kind of accidentally stumbled into the musical, and that which really changed my life. So I think I was, I think I was an intensely insecure adolescent, and less so with each passing year. But I remember going my freshman year and kind of being like, I don't know where I'm going to have lunch because we could leave for lunch or you could stay in the cafeteria. Right. And I never wanted to stay and I was a little too far away to walk home. Mm-hmm. I could I could run home, grab something and run back. But but it was cool to leave. It was cool to leave. And, and so, you know, some of my friends lived close and I was like, are they going to invite me for lunch today? You know, um, I think I have very sharp memories of a certain kind of adolescent insecurity, which has made it interesting to work on on a show like Rise where I'm suddenly the teacher, you know. But at the same time, when I discovered the theater in my sophomore year, it wasn't actually, my junior year was, I did, uh, I played the MC in Cabaret and I described it as, you know, everything went from black and white to color. Like I suddenly, I, I, I don't know, everything changed for me when I got on stage. And um, I suddenly was like really good at something. I was good at a lot of things, but I, I had the feeling I could be excellent at acting. I just, I just kind of came out roaring out of the gates. And I just, I just knew how to do it. I can't explain it. I just knew how to be on stage. I knew how to turn out and let the audience be generous with the audience. I knew how to project my voice. I knew how to memorize a lot. Like none of it felt, it felt familiar to me, even though I hadn't really done it. Uh, yeah. So you felt less insecure once you started doing that. I think so. I mean, I was secure in the way that I would rehearse something and then feel good about presenting it. Right. But I was still insecure before I got on stage and when I got off stage. Right. So anything outside of stage, yeah. you still felt I that. mean, my father disputes my accounts of my insecurity in high school because he didn't experience <laughs> me that way. And I'm like, 
Thanks, uh, Dad. I'm sure your experience of me is more valid than my experience yes. of me. But he he's, he just saw... A, well, parents a, see what they want to see. Well, I think he saw a guy who was like really high achieving. Like I was the class president and I gave the speech at graduation. Right. You know what I mean? And I and it was a good speech. Like I, 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 it mattered to me to... I think, I think in some ways, though, my activities, my kind of, you know, wanting to get good grades and, and do activities was like tactical. I wanted to get into a good college because I thought if I didn't go to a good college, I would be homeless or something. Mm. You know, it was very homeless. Homeless. Yeah. What were you insecure about? My big ears. And I never knew if I was wearing the right clothes. Really? You know what I mean? These are all very... Uh surface level yeah, 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 yeah. truly totally your body is not yeah because i think i was still shaking off puberty you know what i mean like uh -huh. i hadn't grown into myself so i and like i said it was a very socially kind of competitive school so i yeah it was very your what, big what, ears what i never even think? i never thought of that i i yeah i think i think my ears grew before my head grew oh so they it took me a while to grow into uh, my ears yeah. did you have friends did you have a circle yeah yeah, I'm still really good friends with a lot of high school friends. Really? Yeah, more than even college. How, how does that work? I don't know. We just we just stayed tight. They're great guys, you know, and and women too. Like I'm, I when I go home to Columbus, there's always like a big dinner we do, you know. Huh? Yeah. I, you know, I think that's a testament to being an okay person if you're still if you hang on to your high school friends. There's yeah. something too that I only have three. Oh yeah. And I know I'm gonna have those three. It's like three to five. Yeah. Those will stay in my life. Yeah. But friendships are hard to maintain. Yeah. I think we had kind of a ringleader who, who demanded we all hang out. So oh. he was the one organizing the parties and the, you know. Yes. And for right when we were all about, like three years ago, like eight guys, like we went to Santa Barbara for like a couple of days and mm. rented a house and it was just awesome. So you do well in theater. You understand that makes sense. Yeah. Then you go to New York? No, I went to Kenyon College. Right, you go yeah. to Kenyon College. And I was a drama major, but I studied also. And I, you know, I had a, like a proper college experience and drank a lot of beer and did a lot of plays. And, you know. <laughs> was it, it was, good to be away from home? I was only an hour away from home, which wasn't my plan. I wanted to go out, out east, but I had this really strong instinct that if I went to Kenyon, I'd be an actor. And that's where I went, and here we are. You yeah, know? so I, you weren't wrong. I wasn't wrong. So was an hour enough time away from parents? You know, it. I had this nightmare that like my parents would be in the bushes with binoculars or something, looking at you know in the dorm, <laughs> which would have been terrifically creepy. But that never happened. They were they were really respectful, and it ended up being great because I would like bring home the like orphans for Thanksgiving or Passover. You know right. what I mean? Like yes. all the kids who didn't have any place to go i was like come over my my mom loves to overcook yeah we're know? an hour away yeah yeah and it ended up to be great i also every once in a while you know i'd borrow my roommate's car and like literally just take home the laundry you know yeah oh wow <laughs> yeah. so you just go home yeah it ended up pe being great and your sisters are they younger or older both i have an older sister and a younger sister younger sister so yeah. you're middle yeah. child yeah but it wasn't uh, i'm not like middle child like jan brady middle child because i was like the <laughs> only guy so I, I got, I never felt that middle thing. Have you had a lifetime of people telling you about middle child yeah, syndrome? Yeah, when you say you're a middle child, everyone's like, ooh. Yes. But, but you know what? People say that about every, every kind of everyone, kid. Yeah. You're the only child. Only child. You're the ooh, oldest, oldest child. You're the youngest yeah, yeah. child. Yeah. What is the middle child supposed to be? They're sp I think they're supposed to be like the ones who are like competing for attention because yes. no one pays attention to them. Yes, that's exactly you. And that was, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't that vibe at all, you know? Not at all. No. No. But you wanted attention, didn't you? I suppose. I don't know that I was pathological about it. I yeah. think I wanted um, good attention. I was never like a bad attention kid. You yes. Know? You didn't misbehave. 
I did, but it, kind of in the shadows, you know. Like okay. I was a, I, you know, I drank and smoked pot. Like I was, but but not in a way that I, like my friend Ch, you know, ended up passed out in front of his house, and his dad discovered him when right. we went out to get the paper in the morning. Like yes. that wasn't my vibe. Yes, you know, you were responsible. I got your... home at the right hour. And, right, you know what I mean. You were just like a little drunk getting home. Yeah, and I, you know, I was like, Mom, I'm home. You know, yeah. Quick, yeah. in, yeah. out, exactly. in bed. Exactly. Yeah, you do the mouthwash thing? Well, I didn't have to do... My mom never was like, you have to kiss me goodnight. It wasn't one of those oh, creepy things. Yeah, I just yeah. had to lean my head yeah. in and say, I'm home. But I I partied more than my sisters did. I don't know. My older sister was like a pretty good kid, but for some reason she was always at the wrong party at the wrong time, like oh, when the cops busted. Yeah. And she was always like getting swept up in the I always the thing. felt bad for those people. I know. And then I kind of looked at it and I was like, okay, note to self. Don't do that, 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 and that. Yeah. You know? You learned. Yeah. So yeah. in college, you continued acting. Yeah, I got real serious about acting in college and even more serious when I went to NYU right, right. after. NYU seems to be the place from everything I've read where an actor truly puts their steps in place and in motion and, and, and you sort of cement. Yeah, I was there. I was at NYU in the grad acting program at a really special time. It was like Zelda Fitchhandler, who had started Arena Stage, was running it. And this guy, Ron Van Loo, was the acting teacher. And just all the great kind of storied professors were there at that time or teachers. And... Like I said, you know, Mahershala Ali was a year behind me. Sterling Brown was two years behind me. It was just like, you know, Billy Crudup had been there and Marsha Gay Harden and Cameron Manheim. It was just like a something dead, in dead the messing. Air. There was something in the air in the 90s at NYU. So I was there at this incredible time. Um, I remember we, we I moved to New York and the next day we had to do these things called showings where you you do your audition monologues for the whole school and faculty in this little black box, in this little theater. And, you know, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's the most supportive environment. And then that afternoon, the second years get up and they do like two monologues or a monologue and a song. And then the, th the, the next morning, the third years do the same thing. It's just something you have to do. And I remember, um, do you know Saul Williams? He's a slam poet, rapper, yes. hip hop guy, yes. actor, amazing talent. He was a third year when I was first year. And I remember he hopped up on stage and he did these two spoken word poems that were, it was so hypnotic. Like I was transfixed and I, I just, I was in Ohio 48 hours earlier and suddenly I'm watching like this, this singular talent do yeah. this very incredible thing. And I remember just being like, I'm the luckiest person alive. Like, <laughs> like there's only 80 people in this room, 60 people in this room. And it was like electric, yeah. you know? And, and I, it, I had a lot of those, you know, NYU was hard, but I also had a lot of pinch myself moments where I was like, all I wanted to do in high school is like, I dreamt about being an actor in New York City, and then suddenly I'm at this great school training to be one. Then you're an actor in New York City. And then I was an actor in New York City. Did any of it feel daunting? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of anxiety about would I be the one of the people from my class who worked or one of those people who didn't work? Because even, you know... I, I, I talked with this guy I know, and he said, he's he's not an actor, his wife is, and I'd worked with her, and we were all having dinner, and he said, you know, I've looked at, I've, been, I've looked at you guys for 20 years, he goes, 30% of every class is going to work, and 70% is not. So it's like NYU, Yale, Juilliard, it doesn't matter, 30% is going to yeah. work, and 30%... No matter how good. No matter how good. So some of the most talented people, it's you also can't read the tea leaves about who's going to be the one who does it. Yeah. Because a lot of times the people that I thought were like, whoa, I put my money on them. It's like they're not acting anymore. Mm. And it's it's so mysterious about, I think you have to have a combination of like both the talent for it and also like the stomach for it. Yeah. And, and the 
the know-how around like just how to take a meeting, how to talk to people, how not to feel like it's all gross and show busy. A lot of people, they have an allergy to just the business side of it, which I didn't, which is like, I don't think it's that big a deal. It's like, I just knew how to like talk to an executive or a casting director and not feel schmoozy and oily about right. it. So I think that takes a lot of people out. I think so. You know what I mean? Well, because it feels so antithetical to the art itself. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, I want people to see what I do. You know, I didn't want to just be doing experimental theater that no one saw. Mm. You know, I wanted to do good stuff, but at a high level. Right. Yeah. Which is a Venn diagram. There's very little stuff in the middle there. Totally. Totally. So, yeah, it, it was daunting in that there was a like an alumni board, you know, with all the uh, clippings of, of reviews and people who were out there working. And it was kind of like that thing of like, God, God, God I want to get on that board. You got to get, get out of here. Board. You got to get on the board. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that that desire to act can be reduced to a like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross totally type. You got to get on the you board. And if you board. don't, you don't get fucking coffee. Uh, yeah. And that's it. And you're going to feel awful about yeah. yourself. I mean, to be honest, I don't think about the board that much anymore. No, but at that, in those years, that was the marker of like who was out there doing it. Yes. You know, who the press was writing about, who was getting a photo shoot, who was getting profiled, who was getting reviewed. Yes. And you just... Um, what I'm saying is acting is not that dissimilar to going door to door and selling. Uh, In some ways. It, 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 you know, <laughs> I sometimes think about where did I find the the stomach for it, right? And my grandfather was a car salesman. He, he sold Chevys in Cleveland for 40 years. And he was like the top salesman on the lot for most of that time. He was just a great car salesman and like kids, would, you know, people he uh, sold cars to would send their kids to him to buy their first car because they just trusted him. Uh-huh. And I thought, and my, and my father's a trial lawyer, so I have this, and my mom's a teacher, so I have public speaking in my background, I have advocacy in my background, and I also have salesmanship, you know, sales in my background. It's a winning combo. In a way, yeah. I mean, it's not something you think about, but but until you kind of are like, why, am, why have I been able to do this? Yes. You know? I mean, there is a reason for it, because as you said, you know, 70% didn't work, and yeah. probably in that 70%, a good bulk of them were probably fairly talented. Yeah, I mean, some people you think, I don't know about them, (laughs) you know, to be honest. But other people... But that's true of people in the 30%. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, Some people, like, they get out a lot quicker than you think they're going to get out. But they also don't seem as haunted by that decision as you would be if you had gotten out. Do you know what I mean by that? Like. They, they seem pretty happy. They got married, they moved to the Bay Area, and they're cool. Yeah. You know? Well, I think they realize that this is um, maybe not the game they want to play. Yeah, and just loving acting is not enough. You gotta, like, there's gotta be some other... This thing Ron told us that Olympia Dukakis used to teach at NYU, and she said this thing that I think about quite a bit, which is the reasons you become an actor are not the reasons you're going to stay an actor. Mm. Like, you have to reassess why you're doing this. Yeah. And I, and I I reassessed if I wanted to be acting exclusively, which I decided very early on I didn't, that it wasn't enough for me to just be an actor. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be, it's almost like, you know, I directed, written, wrote and directed two films. So it's like the difference between um, playing violin in an orchestra and being the conductor. You know, like you're in charge of that one instrument and your your sound. But if you're the conductor, you've, you've got a whole orchestra at your disposal. And I, I really like that conductor role, mm. you know. I yeah I think so too. It it feels 
Did you ever read that book, Big Magic? Oh, I but, love it. But yeah, 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 I mean, some of that is like too woo woo for me. Yeah, but a lot not of, for me. I'm, well, I'm woo woo. Yeah, I, I love Liz Gilbert. Yeah, I do too. And there's that line where she's like, "You're gonna write something, and that's gonna be hard, and then another idea is going to come." In the periphery, and you're going to be like, oh, I should just go do that now. Yeah. Because hopscotching is easier and more attractive than doing the tedious yeah. work. And I think, I don't, to, and to me, that feels connected to what you're saying about acting, which is you got into it for X reason. And as you continue doing it, there are other, you have to change what you love about it in a way yeah because the uh, the let's say you got into it because of like a childhood wound of like not having attention which okay. wasn't my wound really okay. but but let's say you did that's not enough to sustain you that's like not the that's not the fuel that's going to give you yeah. like a 40 year acting that's career. like two to five years yeah exactly <laughs> in the same way you know it's like getting into a relationship because someone's beautiful it's like that's not enough like two to you're five not months. two to five months yeah you're not going to get that's not going to take you very far so and uh, yeah, I think, you know, the people I've talked to who are in long-term marriages say the same thing. Like, yeah, the reason you marry someone is not the reason you're going to stay married to them. You've mm. got to find another reason. You've got to deepen your commitment. You know, you've got to almost get remarried to the thing all the time. Mm. At age 23, 24, was someone betting on you to do well? You know, I think I was a respected actor at NYU if I, if I, if I... If we did like a poll. Yeah, I think you'd have to almost go back because I, I feel like maybe people would remember me more fondly given that I had a, I've had a nice run. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, I always felt like someone who was really hardworking, if a bit overly cautious. I was very... Um, overly cautious. I wanted to be thought of as good, and that was to my detriment. I sometimes wasn't as risk-taking, risk-taking as I am actually now because I, um, I was afraid of falling on my face, you know? And there were other actors I thought in my class who were braver, if a bit messier than me. But I always felt like I was very good in the productions, you know, like b almost more than the classwork. Like, like if I could rehearse something, I always felt like I was really could get it into bang it into a nice shape. Whereas there were there was another actor in my class who I thought was like an absolute genius at improv. Like I've never seen anyone so quick on their feet, you know. And and the more he would rehearse, he would get a little more tight. But in that, you know, the moment, he was just incredible, uh, unparalleled, right? But I was almost the reverse. Like, I, the more I worked on something, the better I got. And um, Improvising so, was tough. No, I, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not I'm a, I'm a pretty good improviser, but at that moment, I had a lot invested. You know, they, the, the Russians say you have to train actors for four years because the first year is worthless because everyone's just re-auditioning to try to get, you know, approved. And I felt that way for a while, especially my first year at NYU. It's like everyone's just auditioning, just proving that they had a right to be there. Because a lot of people audition for that school and it's hard right. to get in. So you, there's an insecurity like, oh, you know, everyone's got that fraud imposter syndrome going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've never heard what Russian said that. Uh, it, like the, you know, the Russian theaters, like they all, I, I think uh, um, they train for four years. Yeah. They also rehearse a lot longer than we do. Yes. Do. I don't think we seem to be that interested in rehearsal rehearsal for four i mean i've never heard of that no i mean they'll rehearse like a checkoff play for like nine months or something or a yeah. year yeah we do like a good four week you know get a good it, get look, it on the strong street. four weeks yeah. we take the weekends off yeah, it's yeah. wonderful monday's off yeah <laughs> so how quickly after leaving school does something work out for you so you do this thing at nyu called the showcase where it's with at the time it was with yale school of drama 
and you do two like two minute scenes and um i studied people over the years and i saw that you gotta you gotta do comedy was what i noticed the people who the people who did like an out of context Tennessee Williams scene didn't seem to pop as much as I the mean, people two that minutes. just did. Yeah, it's like you got so if you did like the a heavy drama scene, it seemed that the agents and casting directors assumed you couldn't do comedy. But if you did a big comedy scene, they just assumed you could do everything. Oh. So I I was very tactical about that. I did big comedy. It's so strange because that feels to be the like that's the opposite now. I think when you're on screen when right. Some, when someone does comedy, you're like, they can't they, do drama. They but do think comedy. about it, like comedic actors no, I don't think have a true. lot easier times transitioning to drama than totally. vice versa. Totally. Right? And I think, especially, like I was thinking about Tiffany Haddish's performance in Girl's Trip. Did you see that movie? Yeah, of course. Like, that, that's a masterful performance yeah. by any, and, and I really think should have been Oscar nominated. But there's something about the the way we award those awards where it's like, you know seriousness and and prosthetics are really valued above like i know what it's like to give that I, not that i would give that performance but i know how hard it is to give a performance that you know i mean that opened up everything for her that was yeah. a really star making performance and i think it's so rare when you see a comedic actor nominated for those awards so i don't i for some reason culturally it's not as valued but i think in this context I think they're, you know, it's always the most beautiful day of the year in the spring. They're in this dark theater. They'd rather be outside. Entertain them. Yes. You know, they're delighted when you can make them laugh. So you entertain so them. So I entertained them and I got, I had a really good response. I I think I had like 18 agent meetings. And, you know, just getting a couple agent meetings is pretty good. But I had a lot of meetings. I met every casting director in town. And I was just kind of, it felt like I was on my way. Now that said, three or four months later, I'm just an actor in New York City, Right. But I got a really good agent who I was then with for 14 years. And I started understudying at Manhattan Theater Club. So that's how I got my equity card for this off-Broadway play. And then the the actor who I was understudying left. So I got to take over the role for about two or three weeks. Huh. So, you know, I was in this great off-Broadway company for, you know, that was my first job. Then I didn't work for a couple months. Then I got a uh, job at Baltimore Center Stage doing this Eric Bogosian play called Griller, which we thought would come into New York. It never did, but it was a good experience. And then I didn't work for six months or five five or six months and started smoking cigarettes again and feeling sad. And <laughs> Smoking cigarettes happen when you're not working. Yeah. Well, I qu- I'd quit in grad school because I smoked in college. Mm. And then I quit in grad for most of grad school. And then I kind of panicked and smoked for like another six <laughs> months. And then, uh, but I was auditioning for film and TV and a lot of TV, I couldn't get arrested. You know, I couldn't book from a tape. It just felt like, I, I didn't know how to do that. Huh. I, I felt really comfortable in the theater. I felt employable in the theater. And I was like, I don't know if I have that film and TV thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had a couple little, you know, nibbles and got SAG card and kept doing theater and, um, you know, just strung it together. I, I went out to LA and I've told, I think I've told this story a couple of times, but I, I got fired from my first TV pilot that I did, but I, I, I got this, uh, it was my first audition in LA. I got a pilot for the WB. We shot it. They replaced me when the show went to the air. <laughs> Why did they fire you? I never got an answer. It was just someone at the network demanded that they, she demanded my head. They say, Josh needs to go. Yeah, he needs to go. <laughs> it actually garnered me a, a weird amount of goodwill in town because people, know, you know, they, they see the pilots and then, you know, someone said that 
you were the one they fired. <laughs> like it was kind of like it wasn't. I, I've never seen. I haven't seen the pilot in a hundred years. But it wasn't like I, I was tanking the thing. It was just yeah. like a woman decided I wasn't going to be on the show. Yeah, you know. And um, so I, that was. I had to deal with that. Luckily, but I went back to the theater and did two plays. And the year later, I did this um, this John Wells show. And yeah, at that time he had West Wing and ER on the air and it was called The Court. It was with Sally Field about the Supreme Court. I played one of her law clerks. Mm. And um, it was with a great, great company of people. Diane Carroll and Sally Field and Craig Bierko and Miguel Sandoval and young Christina Hendricks and Hill Harper. And it was just really amazing. But they canceled us after three episodes. And then I got the graduate on Broadway for about four months. Right. And uh, that, I had a good year that year. That was, that was the year after I got fired. I had my best year as an actor. I was reading about that. It's, it's uh, I can't remember her name, the woman from Clueless. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Alicia Silverstone. Thank you. For yeah, I did it with her and uh, Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was hard, but it was, um, you know, there was something about getting fired. I kind of had to decide, all right, did, did Hollywood tell me to get lost? Like, did show business say no to right. me? Or do I double down and, and like stay? Yeah. And it was a real moment of, you know, it's another gut check kill for you. you to 100%. But, you know, you take these, you take these hits on the chin along the way. And it's kind of like, how do you respond to it? Not, not that it happened. It's going to happen. You know, like failures, like guaranteed, like guaranteed, you're going to fail. You're going to get fired. You're going to give a lousy performance. You know, you're not going to get the role you want, like whatever. That's just going to happen multiple times. It just was a matter of like really yeah, like like discovering that I had more tenacity and will than I thought I had. Were you surprised by that? But that I had it. Yeah, kind of. I think. Yeah, I think I was. I think I was. But once I had it, it, what happened was I remember seeing my face. They had um, Kathleen and Alicia, and I was right in between these big, you know, blown up shots of us, our faces, really close up at the front of the theater. And I remember walking by and just being like well, you're starring on Broadway in this big hit show. Like, things are going okay. Yeah. You know? It's not a complete disaster. No. but And it was the year after I got fired, so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to stay in this for a little while longer. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. It meant something. Yeah, it meant a great deal. I think that, um, you know, getting, like, to play the title character in a show, and that show wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was a hit, but it wasn't critically beloved or anything, but I didn't have to get reviewed because it was already reviewed. So I just got to slide into this oh, hit with like great audiences. And there was something about, you know, I feel like in the career, like you do something and then there's a little more sky available, like, like the roof lifts, <laughs> like the roof gets a little higher. Right. And um, that's a good way to describe once it. Once I, you know, got a little part on TV. I'm like, well, maybe I could actually be a series regular. And once I did that, it was like, well, okay, now I'm starring on Broadway. Okay. Once I did that, maybe I could start in a film or maybe I could be on a show that actually lasts. Uh -huh. Like you, the carrot keeps moving. And on some level, that's a recipe for dissatisfaction because you're perpetually, the carrots always moving. Right. But on another level, it keeps you, it keeps you going. Yes. You know, but see, this is why some of your friends went to San Francisco and got married. Yeah. Because I think there is a chasing, well, there's an interesting thing that uh, um, Ben Lee told me this recently. Who, ben, who I make music with, in one of my other now lives. Yeah. But uh, Lee and Radner. Radner and Lee. Lee. Yeah. He said um, that he had read something that people who 
are at a certain income level, like very successful people, they view failure as a stop on the road to success. Like just like a little way station. Right. They stop off for a little bit and they fail and then they redirect and they keep going. People who are, are, are low earners who, who actually like they considered failure and whatever they were trying to do is like the end of the road. Mm. Like that was it. I failed. Like I got fired from a show. I'm done. That's it. Yeah. So I think like getting a healthy relationship to failure has been a huge part of like this journey for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the success and I know you've talked about how I met your mother way too much. <laughs> yeah. I, and I know that I can feel it. In this exchange, I even know I feel <laughs> like guilt. oh, here it comes. Here it I comes. feel guilty bringing it up. Yeah, and I don't want to hit the same beats. Yeah, everyone has a different relationship to the show. Yeah, what is it to you now? Well, yeah, and why don't you answer that as honestly and painlessly as possible? Yeah, thank you. Um, what is it to me now? You know, it's a kind of combination of like this deep, deep life-changing thing that the narrative of, of me in the world of, of telling stories and doing this professionally like doesn't exist without How I Met Your Mother. I wouldn't be talking to you without How I Met Your Mother. I wouldn't be on Rise without How I Met Your You know, there's, um, it gave me a certain amount of like wing, wind at my sails that I might not have had. And it also um, drained me of a lot and made me feel imprisoned in a lot of ways. It's... Um, my friend just showed me Ethan Hawke talking about something, you know, that um, one of the things that they do to prisoners to punish them and that can drive them crazy is to isolate them. And when you become famous or when you become more visible, you go into more isolation just kind of naturally. Your circle of people that, you know, gets a little smaller or you, you can get a little paranoid and kind of like it's a little vertigo inducing, you know. And um, I didn't have, I, I you know, the show, some, some, some days I'd be mobbed and it would be like weird and other days I would just be like anonymous. So I never knew what was coming at me, which is also destabilizing because you're like, how well-known am I? Yeah. You know, in LA people leave you alone, but you've got, I've been to, you know, Europe and South America and it's weird. Like some, you know, those shows, the show got very popular there. So I think the hardest thing has been, um, I'm writing a book and I wrote a pretty extensive chapter about the weirdness of being thought of as someone that you're not. And I was playing a character who was close enough to me in terms of the demographics and the look of me and the sound of me. And he was a nice guy and I, I want to be a nice guy, you know, not, you know, like I want to be a, de- a mensch, <laughs> a decent human, right? Right. So I found when I got on Twitter, I got on Twitter in I think 2012 to help promote my movie, my second film, Liberal Arts. And, you know, like most of us, you just don't leave. <laughs> uh, even though I want to, I have a really conflicted relationship with it. But there's that weird thing of, um, you know, no matter what I said or did, people thought I was the guy or accused me of being the guy. Mm. So it was this weird funhouse hall of mirrors where I'm like, dude, I just recommended a song. That sounds like something Ted would like. You know, it was like, wait, what does he like? Or... You dress just like him. It's like, he just wears shirts and pants, man. Like, there's nothing, you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't escape it. And I, I was feeling... That seemed to rattle you. It did rattle me because I also, I, you know, I have this thing I've noticed, like a pet peeve of mine, is when someone tells me what I am, where they're like, you're a funny guy or whatever. It's like, not always. Or like, you're pretty serious, aren't you? It's like, not always. Like, I guess I consider <laughs> myself like a, a complicated, multidimensional person. Oh, I've heard of those. Yeah. yeah. And and when you're 
you, you feel like there's this imprisonment going on where it's like, you are just that. And not only that, we don't want you to be anything but that. And in fact, we don't even, we will not accept you in other roles because you are so firmly that in our heads. Uh. And it's really destabilizing for an actor to hear that. At the same time, it allowed me to like travel to like so many countries. I got to write and direct two independent films and kind of not care about money yeah because i really cared about the projects it's it liberated me to have a creative life and so i've decided that the pay the the, the you know the um whatever that ends justifies yeah means. kind of like the the other thing that i i continue to get touched by is that how i met your mother for some weird weird reason and i i've, I've never done any statistical analysis on other shows but it has some sort of antidepressive effect on people. So people reach out to me all the time. They're like, I was, you know, suicidal. I was depressed. I was, my, my, you know, my mom died. I had spinal meningitis and I was in the hospital. And your show, I was going through a divorce. Your show was like my lone source of laughter and joy in the day. Now that's a lot to put on a sitcom. Yeah. But at the same time, I've heard from soldiers who were stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan and they're like, I don't know what this show did. It brought me closer to my wife. It 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 healed my depression. I was able to like take my mind off prisoners, you know. There's some value in that. And there is, and it made me feel like, you know what? <clears throat> if people call me Ted or say classic schmoesby to everything I write, like not I everything. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. You know, it's like it's classic and they're like they're like 16-year-olds writing you. It's been like 5 years since I've watched it. Yeah. Or but it's years. like it's like I'm a 43-year-old man and you're like treating me like your high school buddy or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it can really chip away at you. But at the same time, I've really heard of enough people who discovered me through How I Met Your Mother, went on to really look at my movie, you know, love my movies, yeah. love my writing, listen to podcasts I do, are now Radnor and Lee fans. So like I definitely it opened up this whole world. Happy Thank You More, Please got more attention because you were on that show. I, 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 I remember that at the time. I guess, but it also, you know, this is, the you know, I try to stay out of this, but it's like, you have a lot of grievances, but like, we won the Audience Award, which is a big deal at Sundance, you right. know? And like, the New York Times like wrote about it. They said the sitcom style, you know, uh, movie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not a sitcom style. Like, I, I think because I was on one, yeah. it made people think it was something it wasn't. If I was just a guy who came out of nowhere with how, uh, with Happy Thank You More, please, I think people would be like, cool film, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So Double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword, always. But what isn't, you know? Uh, water. I suppose. Water is purely good. The, the yeah. show um, has had that success that, like, it falls into the... There's probably, like, a couple tiers of sitcom. Yeah. But it's like... Cheers and Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, and How I Met Your Mother's somewhere at the bottom of that or the top of the second tier yeah, because yeah. it hasn't been around for that long. Yeah, yeah. I can't make heads or tails about its antidepressive quality, but it does have that. Yeah. The irony is that it probably um, caused you some amount of depression in its own way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is true. I mean, I really did some battle with it and... At a certain point, I didn't want to be that guy anymore. You know, I just simply didn't want to put on his clothes and say those lines because I was, I felt like I was getting too old. Like I was a couple of years older than him. I was like, I'm, I'm more sophisticated than this guy. I, uh, have, I have different concerns in the world. I'm not well, that's obsessed was, with the way he is. With I was going to ask you if you can, 
in the most honest account possible at this point, looking back, mm-hmm. the parallels between you and Ted, did you find it to be at all a mirror of yourself? I mean, in the most superficial, um, at the beginning, uh, you know, Carter Bay is one of the creators is from Cleveland. So they made Ted from Cleveland. That was always going to be the case, but I happened to be from Ohio. And I was like, oh my God, look at that. We're both, you know, from Ohio. We both went to small liberal arts colleges. We're, you know, we're in Ohio and then we moved to New York and I had the New York thing. And, but at the same time, I was looking at the beginning for ways I was really, I was trying to like, oh, these are ways I'm similar. And then by the end, I was like, I felt like anything I you diverged. could do to be different. Yes. I just felt like not like him. I felt like he was owned. My friend, a friend described it. He's like, it's like you have an avatar out there with your face that's going out and doing all these things that you didn't do, <laughs> but you're like held accountable for them, uh-huh. you know? And it was weird and it continues to be weird. But I also, I try to remember, I'm happy you said that. Like, I try to remember that the show was good. Like it was a quality show. It wasn't, there's no, there's no like head hanging low in shame that I was on. The, yeah. Like, like it was a beloved show. It wasn't a piece a lo- of shit. A lot of people, I think it really affected like a generation of comedy writers. You can see its influence in a lot of areas. I think Carter and Craig are like really, really smart. The guys who created it. And I, they're really good friends. Pam Fryman, who directed every episode almost is like one of my favorite people in the world. It brought beautiful people into my life. Certain guest stars, you know, became really dear friends to this day you know it 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 altered me in a profound way uh-huh. and and it drove me crazy yeah. and and the other thing is it's like the circle of people you can complain about about being on a hit television show is very small you're not going to talk to other your actor friends about it unless they're on a hit show themselves <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to hear about that you know your parents and sisters can only hear so much yeah although they were you know endlessly patient with me but you know, it's 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 a weird state because it's it's like prison, but it's like the most luxuriously appointed prison you could ever imagine. Yeah, like they'll get you any food you want. In any that food prison. you want. Any food. Gosh, any food. Yeah. Any kind of drink. Not anything. So, but you can't leave no. until and until it's time to leave. And then, like I said, some people don't want you to leave because also people will come up to me. They'll be like, I watched the show nine times. And I'm like, the entire series? They're like, yeah, the entire series. Yeah, I know those people. And they have, they have, um, they've just been watching me that night doing something that I did 11 years ago or fake did 11 years ago, right? I mean, all fake. Yeah, all fake. And they'll say something to me. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't remember that episode. But to them, it's so vivid. Right. And it's as if I did it. And they shared in the joy of it with me. And I'm like that belongs to you, you know? I'm doing this other thing, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Also, Ted was especially, um, what I remember, uh, he was an especially romantic yeah. kind of character. Yeah. I always thought, I've always kind of wanted to ask you this, did it affect the way you approached romance? I mean, that's a great question filled with landmines, you know? <laughs> I think Ted was... Um, My favorite kind. Yeah. Ask. I think he was like obsessive and he was a bit of an addict in a way. He was addicted to like the romance and the first flush of romance and always thinking like, oh, she's just around the corner. I, I My thing's different. Like I I think in some ways I I I avoided being that guy. Like, like I don't know if I'm naturally... I think I'm a little more... Mm, 
I'm much more cautious romantically. Like I tiptoe into things. I don't throw myself into things with, with a few exceptions, you know, but I'm, I'm really, um, I try to, I try to do some recon before I throw myself into stuff, especially now, you know, I'm older and I'm not married. And I think with the older you get, you've, you've had enough experiences that you are kind of like, okay, there's a lot of nutty stuff out there, including my own. I mean, I'm lugging a whole heap of baggage. Right. So I, I just try to, um, almost not throw myself into stuff like that. But I also, one of the things I noticed is um, certain people like loved Ted so much and are like, that was me. Heard women say, that's me. A lot of men and say it was my favorite TV character of all time. And then there are people that like loathe him, like hate him. And I always took that personally, which was weird because I was like, I'm not this guy. (laughs) And when you hate him, I take it personally. Like, you you know what I mean? Like, it's so crazy. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot. A lot to unpack. And, um, and I, I, you know, someone, someone wrote a really great kind of defense of Ted where they like loved him and said, the reason that people are hard on that character is because he's us. Like he's the I, he's the narrator. He's the one we're most asked to identify with. So the other people are your friends and we're, we cut our friends some slack. We love our friends. We, we put up with all their foibles. Who are we hardest on ourselves? So it's like that my character was going to come in for the, the biggest thrashing, Yeah, you know? And, I, you know, there'd be certain things he would do and, and people would be like, what an idiot. And I'd be like, yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like I wouldn't do that either. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just the guy who was hired. I'm contractually obligated to act like I'm doing that. Yes. But also, who hasn't done something stupid when trying to fall in love? Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I actually do like about him, and, and this is where it gets like deeply psychological and Jungian and all sorts of crazy stuff is like, to play that character, all those things had to be part of me. It's just not all of me, right? Uh. Like there is a part of me that's like incredibly, like I can say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, you know, chase the wrong girl, like whatever it is. Like I've, I've, I'm, I've done all that. It's just, I, I've, I'm, I'm a mature person. <laughs> I'm not doing it now. Or it's just, it's an aspect of myself that, you know, I, I was always afraid, I think, like a lot of men of being publicly vulnerable but that character demanded that I be the face of like male vulnerability for a really long time on, on TV. Mm. And I kind of look at it as this like training for me to be a little braver somehow, but it was not without cost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the cost is you're feeling this way now. Yeah. I'm, you know what though? I don't walk around with like this monkey on my back. You're just asking me these questions. So it's bringing it up. It's like, (laughs) this is literally the first time I've thought about how I met your mother. Like, in a while. That's great. And, and the other thing is when people a- would ask, even while I was doing the show, like, oh, what's going on? I would have like five things I would be way excited about. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, and I'm on this huge hit TV show. I always forget about yeah. that. You know what I mean? It wasn't the primary <laughs> fact of my life. Well, you've moved on. But even in the middle of it, you while I was shooting it, it was, like a, it was like a day job. And I don't mean that I didn't take it seriously. It was like, that was me going to the office. Yes. And then I would work on these other creative projects outside the office that I was really excited about. Mm. Yeah. Do you think you said something interesting? You tiptoe fairly cautiously in romance now, which Ted did not do. Correct. Do you think you do that because you're afraid of having your heart hurt? (laughs) What if I just started weeping so hard right now? 
No. Um, it would be okay. No, I'm not going to. Is that? Yeah, maybe. But I also think, um, you know, I think, I think like love and relationships, there's the potential for so much pain and collateral damage on both sides. So it's not only a matter of protecting myself, it's also like a matter of kind of protecting the other person. Like, I really don't like to hurt people. So I don't like to make false promises. I don't like to get involved in something unless I really feel strongly about it. So in some ways, it's just like sparing us both a little agony. Uh, and maybe that's an avoidant technique. I don't know. Uh, it seems not entirely dissimilar to when you were in NYU. And your approach to acting, you said, was you were diligent, you worked hard and wanted to be light, but you weren't as um, spontaneous, perhaps, as other performers. Mm -hmm. Like you were always someone who like did the work yeah, I always felt like a really, really good B plus, sometimes A minus person at NYU. Yeah, yeah. and and it, you think there's a there's a similarity in the caution. Yeah, to like let loose is 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 this is all surface. Yeah, you know what? I have a, a gazillion counterexamples that I I'm sure. Yeah, the, the, where I haven't been, where I've been super impulsive, where I get on the plane. You know what I mean? Like where I, where I've done the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a song called Frequent Flyer about someone who's always like, you know, falling for people far away so they can like, you know, I think that's a common thing, yeah. you know, having the missing and like, oh, I'm going to get to see you. I've done the long drive across yeah. state. Yeah. Oh, I've gotten on planes. I've done all of it. How's the plane ride? It's good. I mean, I, I did go up to years ago. I went up to see someone that I had connected with in a foreign country and she was in Portland and I went up to her and it was like, almost immediately horrible like that was hard like you landed and it was i landed and i had left my bag on the plane and I, <laughs> I like had to run like it was bad omen it was yeah it was just a disaster from the moment it started <laughs> and um you know so i don't i i think that i i feel i feel creatively so much bolder and more spontaneous now uh -huh. than i did when i was at in drama school 100 percent. Right. but i think that's because i feel more secure i feel like i'm in a place that i'm i'm, I'm just more comfortable risk-taking and like ben and i just got back from a tour to brazil and argentina we did like a mini radner yeah i tour. saw that yeah and it was amazing and it was um you know we just i don't know we just like found this way to be in front of an audience that was like really celebratory and fun it was i think when we first started out it was like Hey, I'm Ben Lee, and uh, you know, and I'm <laughs> this guy who was on this famous TV show, and <laughs> we're now making music together. But when we went to Brazil and Argentina, it was suddenly like we're a band, like we're a proper band. And even if people came because they knew the show, it was like they left really liking us. And uh. and not only that, it was like a lot of people were singing along, and the album only came out in November, so yeah, there it seems like something was getting through. It seems like the only people who had an issue with you doing other things were other people. It was never you. Right. You always... Uh, oh, I long to do other things. Yeah, but yeah. you were talking about, you know, when you directed Happy Thank You More, Please, there was the comment about the sitcom, and I imagine since leaving the show, there have been repeated comments about you being very good at this thing, and we're a little reluctant to accept you doing these things. I think the, the, the shedding of having been on a sitcom for that long, and I mean a, a multi-camera brightly lit laugh track sitcom is different than like being on 30 rock which is filmed a little more like a, a movie right uh. it's more cinematic i suppose so or new girl or something like that where i think the transition into i mean i'm really excited about rise because it's like gorgeous and looks like a 
movie you know it's like it's a, just a different vibe and it's it's actually really a lot closer to my sensibility than how i met your mother which you know i loved but at the same time it's like i'm i'm more into like bittersweet kind of comedy drama drama comedy than i am like just pure yeah pure laughter which i i don't want to sell how i met your mother short because it did a lot of that but rise feels like exactly the kind of show i want to be on right now but i think there is a kind of um you've got to reprove yourself, you know? Like every every rung of the ladder of success gives you a new problem. <laughs> it just does, you know? And then you have to rebel or smash the, the previous thing that came before you. And it's really exciting when you see people able to do that. What was the new problem when liberal arts came out? Should I start? Please. Okay. I liked it. It was fun and stupid, mm -hmm. and it passed the time, and it's not Tolstoy, but it's also not television, and it made me happy. How are you? Thank you. Mm. This is the worst book ever written in English. So there are worse books written in other languages? Probably not. Unless this book is translated into other languages. <laughs> really? We don't need to do this. No, please, let's. I need to know how you read these, uh, whew, I guess you call them sentences. Close the book and feel anything other than offended and sad. Well, millions of people like it. So when millions of people like something, that means it's good? No, it means millions of people like it. These books make people happy. We don't always have to be thinking about poli-sci or reading Chaucer, which, by the way, I hate it. You're not supposed to like it. But then why read it? <laughs> um, I remember that coming out and being, I was, I was surprised and pleasantly surprised that you, I had seen Happy Thank You More Place, but Liberal Arts felt like you really understanding craft in a way. Yeah, I think you just need to go through. I always think of Happy Thank You More Please as like if I if I was a band, like just to use music metaphors, I feel like it's like a really raw first record. Yeah, that is like has great energy, but it's like young. In it's a like way. with the Beatles. <laughs> thank you. I mean, thank you. Let's just use this. Let's ride this metaphor. The rest just of the like the Beatles. Yeah, just like the Beatles is what I mean. Yeah. Um. By the way, you're a Beatles fan, I imagine. Yeah. Um, Dreaming the Beatles, this Rob Sheffield book. He's a Rolling Stone writer. I, uh -huh. I finished it a couple weeks ago. It's phenomenal. If anyone's <laughs> listening, read that book. It's amazing. Sidebar. Yeah. But um, liberal arts, I definitely think, you know, it has more of a proper third, you know, three-act structure. It's like I was understanding. I, I had, the, the difference was I had been in an editing room. So when I was shooting Happy Thank You More, Please, I, like I'd never edited a movie. So I didn't, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't quite know what I was doing. Uh-huh. Liberal arts, I had been through the editing process, so I knew that I was gathering a lot of material for the editing room. Yeah. So I just had a different take on it. I was in more of liberal arts than I was Happy Thank You More, Please, which was somewhat problematic just because I was exhausted. But um, I like both movies very much. I think they're I think they're cousins. Like they feel like the same. There's a, a voice and a look and a thing that I feel like you can, it feels like the same filmmaker even though the films are different. My biggest thing is... Um, I want people to see them in the theaters, you know. They were both, you know, both got standing ovations at Sundance, which is not actually a small thing. Like, you know, not a lot of films do yeah. that. And they were really rapturously received. And then they were bought. And, you know, it's hard to release an independent film. 
But I'd love to find a way to get people to see them and know about them. I almost want to re-release Liberal Arts because um, I think it was a little uh, misunderstood in terms of... In, if you haven't seen Liberal Arts and you're listening, like watch it because I'm about to spoil the whole movie. So turn it off now, watch Liberal Arts and come back and listen to the rest of this. But... Um, you know, the third act, a lot of people who have never seen liberal arts think it's about an older guy who has a romantic relationship with a college student. Right. And it was actually flipping all that, that storyline on its head. And it's not what that movie ends up being. Mm -hmm. The movie ends up being something else. And there were a couple of really, really good prominent male critics who accused me of losing my nerve in the third act. And they, they were like, I think Peter Travers said something like, it was like, I, got up on the high dive and then sheepishly looked around and climbed down. Yeah. You know, but, but he's a jackass. So. Well, what, what he's saying is he should have slept with her. Right. And what he's also saying is I would have slept with her. Right. And but that's great. Great for Peter. Travers. Yeah. But, but a couple critics said that. And I was like, I actually think the fact that he doesn't sleep with her is the most revolutionary part of the movie. Like that's the whole point of the movie. Right. I had so many women come up to me and say, thank you for that. Because either they had a man who didn't, wasn't so respectful or, you know, it's just not what you're expecting to see in that movie. And I think like what's going on now, I really think it would land in a different way uh, because I think, I don't know. I just think, I just think it's... Uh, did you find releasing it to be frustrating? Both, both film releases were deeply frustrating. Yeah. In what way? In the way that I wanted them to stay in theaters longer. I wanted more marketing dollars. I wanted more people to see them in the theaters. Now, the, the the thing is that's been really delightful is that films live on and they have a life. So I hear from people all the time about both movies. They, they've gotten around. People have seen them. Was that a shock when you were moving from a sitcom to not only directing, but really having to, when you're an indie filmmaker, put these things out? Were you surprised by the apparatus that we have to go through to do that? In some ways, just because I didn't think, I didn't give a single thought to marketing and promotion of How I Met Your Mother because like the CBS 20th Century Fox, you know, arm is like, does their job. I just showed up for the photo shoot and did the interviews when they asked, right. you know? Whereas this is felt like I was like, strapping a boulder to my back and trying to walk up a mountain. But I also, there's something about the DIY, you know, indie spirit that I actually really, it's not, I don't know if I like, no, I do like it because I, you know, Ben and I self-released Radner and Lee and didn't go with a label. And there's something, it gives you a lot of latitude. I don't know if you, you, uh, you know, Amanda Palmer is really smart about this stuff. You know who she is? I don't. She, she, she was um, in the Dresden Dolls and she's married to Neil Gaiman, but she's, really forward thinking about how to engage fans and how to get people on your team to get things out there. And she has this theory. She says, you only need a thousand fans in this day and age, a thousand engaged fans who are willing to pay for content, who will support you. Right. And there's things like Patreon and, you know, Ben's all high on Steemit, which is like this blogging platform that uses a cryptocurrency. And there's all sorts of new ways to, get people engaged and to alert them about what you're doing. And I really like that idea. I have a, a newsletter, I call them Muse letters that I do once every two months or so. And it's, just, you know, it's like a really kind of big, thoroughly searching essay mixed with like all sorts of suggestions of things I'm reading and liking and listening to. But, 
you know, I have a lot of people who subscribe to this and it's, it's just a way to be more intimate with people who really want to follow what you're up to yeah. and share with them. And I really, I really like that. You know, I don't, I, I sometimes look at people who are like stratospherically famous, you know, where it's like every, out, uh, every outfit is covered. Do you know what I mean? Like, like uh, Taylor Swift. Concert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like something like that where I think those artists can reinvent themselves, but it's so deliberate and calculated because they also can't alienate the gazillions of people that the record company needs buying their things or the movie, you know? <laughs> so in some ways, Hank Green said this, who's John Green's brother, and I think about this all the time. He said, the only following worth having is a cult following because a cult following will support you, but it also gives you so much latitude to like follow the winds of inspiration and, mm. you know, the big magic, right? Like you can really listen to that a little bit deeper on a deeper level. So I'm cool being like more of an indie artist who had this one hit show. Maybe I'll have another one in Rise. I don't know. But, you know, if I can be on TV and, and love what I'm doing and support my other work doing that, I'm, I sometimes look at acting now as my patron. Uh-huh. You know, it's like my Medici's that like allow me to write songs and, you know, it, it just it just gives me a lot of latitude. You don't need the stratospheric success. I, I, the, there's, so there's an ego part of you that's like, why don't I have that? Or why is it, is that, would that, is that, would that make me happy? But I, I see that that's ego. I see that, that, that just, the ego is, I heard this thing, the ego doesn't want to have, it wants to want. So it wants, to, it stays in this perpetually unsatisfied state of hunger. And I've noticed from different people, I know a lot of people who are at various stages of, of visibility, it just never goes away. You know, you can be at the top, 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 and you're still like pissed off that, you know, Will Smith's getting your roles or whatever, you know? And um, it's kind of like showbiz is like rigged for your dissatisfaction. <laughs> and you have to decide like where you're going to draw your juice from, like what's going to sustain you. And like the thing that's making me the happiest is learning how to play guitar and writing songs is like literally like I can't, it's my happy place. Like when Ben comes over and we're writing or I'm writing on my own, like I feel successful. Uh, I feel creatively successful somehow. So yeah, I can sit here and say like, no, 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 I don't want to be whatever. It's partly a lie and partly a hundred percent true because I really do like where I'm at right now. And do I want to be, you know, do I want to work with P.T. Anderson? A hundred percent. Like, yeah, I want him to call me and want to do an awesome movie with him. And for sure. Yeah. You know, sign me up. but, but at the same time, there's a lot of movies I want to make on my own and there's a lot of music I want to make. And there's a lot of, um, just, you know, I want to also be able to go to dinners with friends and I want to be able to see my nieces and nephews. And I want to have a life that's not so, I think when you get to that stratospheric place, you you have to be so cocooned, you know, so isolated from human. So you, you know, you're just surrounded by these this crew of people that you trust or tr- want to trust. And it just feels like a, another kind of layer of prison. So I'm trying to find some freedom. I don't know what that looks like exactly, but I'm starting to get a little different sense of it, you know. Oh, better late than never. Yeah. You feel okay? Do I feel okay? Yeah. About this talk or about everything? Everything. I think so. How do you feel? Me, I changed from day to day. Yeah? Yeah. But we're nearing the end. 
this of this conversation yeah oh so is there like is this the time where it's like is there anything else you'd like to talk about no this is the part where i could ask a few big questions okay yeah feel free though you've hit on so many big things so quickly you have you have a way of doing that i don't know if you know this josh <laughs> but you have a, you know you make my thing that i'm doing here very easy <laughs> i just say hi and you're yeah. like let me tell you everything you know i do like like long form interviews and i and i i hate being interviewed where they just pull quotes because i i i feel like what i say is very contextualized yes. like it's just dependent on like you could pull a quote from here and make me look like a schmuck or whatever yeah, yeah. but if you print we'll the whole thing do that for you yeah, if, you, if you print the whole thing it's like oh i see what he was saying yes. you know so i enjoy these so <laughs> anyway ask some big questions I'm well here's something yeah on a long form podcast i think it was pete holmes you had this quote that i actually do think about fairly often and you're talking about the internet and about information and you said something to the extent of and i'm paraphrasing yeah we thought having all this information would make us happy yeah but it doesn't correct and it didn't and correct. it won't yeah and so i'm i don't know i'm sitting across from you now the friday yeah we set the mood lighting set the, the mood lighting is perfect in here you guys and uh set by you <laughs> and i and i have only one question which is as simple as it gets but maybe hard which is do you feel that you're happy i am well here's okay <laughs> <laughs> this is this is how my mind works that was the answer so, so i go well, we have to unpack what the word happy means, right? Like, that's what I want to do. Student, now, see? I, now this is I, what I mean, yeah. Josh. Student first. Yeah. Diligent. There's yeah. A diligence to you. Well, I don't know if that's diligence as much as like trying to have an elastic mind, okay. which doesn't want to reduce things. Don't reduce. Like, I want to keep things, I want to give things their appropriate complexity and nuance. Okay. How, you know what I mean? Let's start with this. Yeah. Why don't you define what happy means to you? And then you can answer that question. Well, I think that happiness is not a um, chronic state. I think it's something that flares up and it goes away. So am I happy right now? Yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation. My friend John is in from San Diego for our friend Carrie's birthday party last night. We had a great time with a bunch of guys for his birthday last night. He cooked breakfast this morning. We had a great talk. I'm having a nice chat here and enjoying that. So the last 24 hours have been really, I've been contented, as I would say. I'm enjoying, like I said, having getting home to come home and like getting to play my guitar and writing songs and having like an outlet for like three minute ideas versus 90 minute ideas <laughs> is making me really happy i love rise i'm super happy for for the world to see it i'm also nervous just because it's like no longer going to be ours and people will weigh in and some people won't like it for whatever reason but some people will and so there's that whole rat race of of putting something out in the world but i i feel um yeah, I think I, what I long for more, more than happiness is just peace. Like some you know like a peaceful where I'm not hijacked by like the latest headline. I w w in in and, and that doesn't mean ignoring it. It just means like when I feel peaceful, I can be of service. Like I kind of know what the next right action is. Whereas if I'm, you know, hopped up or anxious or thinking I'm supposed to be, you know, the Taylor Swift of my generation or whatever, it, it I, I you know it's it's a, look it's all like the buddhist you know grasping you know the desire is like really i th whenever i can get like you know what this moment is really good and there's nothing missing in this moment then i feel pretty happy so like in this moment yeah i'm happy 
Do you want to be in love? Yeah. But not in like a cracked out, you know, addicted way. Like not in the not way. Not in Ted's Mosby kind of no, way. No, and not in the way of like setting yourself up to where you, you, you're, you, those goggles are just missing every red flag, and, you know, <laughs> and, and you're, you're, you're just like in this bubble that's going to burst. Mm. I'd like to be in some kind of like real sustainable trusting like hilarious communicating uh, like communicative partnership that just feels like yeah this is my gal and i'd <laughs> like to keep i'd like to stay with her you said like that, it's real simple you know i mean it sounds simple it I, sounds simple but i also have I, I i have a lot of not a lot i have some relationships that i admire and there's a simplicity to them you know there's like a people who just had like as checkered a romantic past as they could have. And then they find someone and they're like, yeah, this one was just easier. Like all the crazy doubts and looking for the exit signs and keeping tallies of what the person did wrong. All that stuff goes away. And you're just like, I really dig this person. Like that's, that'd be nice. Do you ever ask your parents how they do it? You know, they're, they're pretty like, they're big on the laughter thing. They they fight in the car over... My mom's a real backseat driver. <laughs> and that's where I said, what percentage of your guys' arguments are car relate, car and driving related? And like I think my mom was like 90%. My dad was like 95%. <laughs> like it's, such a, it's such an issue for them. Um, but uh, I think they just, you know, they just let each other be each other. And... It's not like I, 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 there are other people besides my parents. I ask her, you know, like, how do you do it? Yeah. It's not, it's not like I'm trying to recreate my parents' relationship. It works for them. But, uh, yeah, they're, they, they, they've got a, I, I sometimes feel weird. Like I, I tell my sisters this, like when we want to comment on our parents' marriage, especially me, I'm like, what right do I have to comment on like a 47 year relationship or 46 year? You know what I mean? Like who, what arrogance that I would be like, you know what you guys should do differently. (laughs) You know, it's so silly. Yeah. Yeah. The thing you said you hated or is a huge pet peeve for you um, is when people tell you who you are. Yeah. You're at an age now where there's a lot of people. I imagine I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, just tell me I'm wrong. They say you're X age, I think you're 42, 43? 43, yeah. This is the age where marriage is supposed to happen, or it should have happened, or something like that. Yeah. And I wonder, how would you deal with that? (laughs) Well, my life is so strange all around. Like, my life is not what, you know, my high school friends who stayed in Columbus, like, I... I love them and they love me and I have a real different life than them. And I travel all the time and I have a lot of friends my age who also aren't married. So I don't feel like I'm in this weird ecosystem where I'm like the last guy standing. So I I hope it didn't seem like I was making you. No, 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 no. It's okay. I think that if I had gotten married at like 35 or 32 or even 39, like there were things I hadn't, worked through and then I'm kind of feel like, okay, I've worked through this a little bit more. I just feel a little more inhabiting myself, you know, like, like I am inhabiting myself in a different way. And, um, so who knows? I, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a fortune teller or anything. I don't, I don't know how things are going to shake out, but I do know that 
my life is is fairly non-traditional and i've accepted that it's a, it, like i've accepted that i'm a creative person and that because of that i'm going to be creating something that's sing, like unique and uniquely my own and it's going to be it's it involves getting married if i do get married after 43 <laughs> you know <laughs> things happen at your own uh, pace they do and you know there's that weird thing that a lot of people ask, which I assume you won't ask, but like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Which I, I refuse to answer that question because I always feel like a, that's impossible to answer. And B, if you ask me 10 years ago, where do you want to be in 10 years? I think my, I I would have come up with something way less cool than what's happening. (laughs) You know what I mean? I wouldn't be like, I'm going to be in a band with my friend Ben Lee and we're going to go to Brazil and Argentina and then Australia. No way. No way. That's been like the the greatest surprise. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. So I, I like to stay on the side of um, letting the universe do, you know, kind of just being open to like where it feels. I had a meditation teacher years ago that said, um, follow the charm, which I always like that. You know, it's not like follow the joy or euphoria. It's like, what's charming to you in this moment is like, okay. I think like getting a bagel with cream cheese and doing a little writing for a half hour is kind of charming. And then you do that and you meet someone really cool that you have a cool conversation with and that leads to a party invitation. And then that leads, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you don't know why you wanted that bagel, (laughs) but it leads to something very interesting Uh because you're following the charm. I think we have a, like a, an inner GPS in us that if you can get quiet enough, you can kind of hear it's like, it's like subtly guiding you, Uh but you got to get quiet because if, if the noise is too loud, you're not going to hear it. I hope you uh, keep following the charm. (laughs) Thanks, man. And that your life keeps surprising you. Thank you. Yours too. I wish that for you too. Thank you. All right. Josh Radner, thanks for coming on. Thanks. It was really nice talking to you. our show this week if that conversation with josh was at all you know meaningful or worthwhile it would help us out a great deal if you shared your enthusiasm on social media or just with a friend i know it's a silly and specific request but it really does help us out the more each of you spreads the word the easier it is for us to just keep making this program possible With that, I want to thank Sarah Zebrock and Tori Smith at ID for helping arrange this conversation. Josh's new show called Rise premiered last week, but it will be airing every Tuesday starting March 20th on NBC. Also, if you're interested in checking out Josh's directorial efforts like Happy Thank You More Please and Liberal Arts, you can do so on Amazon and iTunes. Lastly, you can listen to all of Radner and Lee's recordings on Spotify or wherever you get your music. To learn more about Josh and us, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. And uh, should you find yourself in the iTunes review section, 
which is a hard place actually to find for most people. But if you do find yourself there, any kind words about this show would be much appreciated. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Bill and Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.